Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Tim McCusker speaks with Rick Reeder. Tim is the chief investment officer at NEPC one of the industry's largest independent investment consultants with over $1.3 trillion in assets under advisement. Rick is BlackRock's chief investment officer of Global Fixed Income, a group that manages approximately $2 trillion in assets. 
BlackRock's fixed income portfolio covers both active and index mandates across a breadth of vehicles and strategies around the globe. Before they dive in, Tim and I discuss how NEPC works with BlackRock and client portfolios and positions Rick's Strategic Opportunities Fund in fixed income allocations. Tim, great to see you. Great to see you as well, Ted. So BlackRock's an interesting one to talk about. Huge organization. And I just love to frame this out by trying to get an understanding of how do you think about both Rick's role and BlackRock in the context of your client portfolios? Sure. Yeah, it's not exactly a niche idea to interview someone from BlackRock, but they're a huge platform. They give you every service you could possibly need when it comes to investment management. And so you've got to be a little bit selective. You've got to figure out where those best-in-class offerings are on a platform like that. And Rick is one of those best-in-class offerings that we've identified. And so when, when we're doing our research, you're looking much more bottom-up at the strategy, at the portfolio manager and the team and figuring out whether it's a great strategy in and of itself. And then your evaluation of the firm almost becomes like a veto on top of that. If there's firm level issues that you identify, if there's some ownership instability, or if there's a lot of turnover or a poor culture, maybe that could be enough where you've got a great investment strategy, but you're not going to recommend it because of those firm issues. But in BlackRock's case, I think one thing about having that large platform is they can dot every I and cross every T and make sure they're delivering that platform in the best way possible to all investors. So we do think highly of them and we use them in a lot of different ways. But Rick's strategic income opportunity strategy is probably the most notable one that we use. So across your client portfolios, where do you see the variety of clients saying, yeah, that's something I want and others saying, no, 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 that's BlackRock or whatever it is? It's pretty diverse in the client types that will use Rick's strategy. It fits a really important need in today's environment of getting you some return-seeking exposure from the fixed income world without that duration that often scares people away. It's a risk factor that not everyone wants. If you're a corporate pension plan, maybe you've already got a lot of duration in your portfolio by hedging some of your liabilities and you don't want much more, but you want that unique alpha. If you're an endowment or foundation, you don't want a lot of duration exposure, maybe, but you can get that unique set of exposures that Rick gives you. I think with some of our clients, maybe in the endowment space or private wealth space that are looking for more high vol, niche ideas, that's not what this strategy is. It's going to be really well diversified. It's going to be really reliable, but it's not going to give you this upside return or the downside return for that matter. And, and some clients are looking to build a portfolio of really unique ideas. And this is a little bit more down the middle. So with that type of risk profile and a mothership behind it like BlackRock, how does that influence how you think about position sizing of that, say, strategic income fund in those clients that use it? It's really interesting because it's down the middle from an overall portfolio perspective. It's a reasonable volatility level. It's a return expectation above what you might expect from just getting core bond exposure with 50 basis points of expected alpha on top of that. But within a fixed income allocation, it's a pretty high tracking error strategy when you think about what most fixed income strategies deliver for tracking error. So you have to think of it in a total portfolio context. And so for our clients that are 
thinking within their fixed income portfolio, they only want so much vol, it's not as much of a fit. For our clients that are looking on more of a total return basis and comparing it maybe to a source of alpha from the equity side, then it gets really interesting. And still, you do have to be careful with sizing. A lot of times with some of our most return-seeking clients, there's just not enough fixed income exposure <laughs> to get much exposure to this. You really, you maybe only have 10 or 15% of traditional long-only fixed income, and this maybe takes up half of it. But for some clients, it's going to be their biggest fixed income allocation, but it's not going to be that supersized core bond allocation that you're used to seeing in a, a really classic 60-40 portfolio. Great. Well, Tim, it's a really interesting conversation. So let's have at it. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for letting me do this. Absolutely. We've worked together for a lot of years, and I think this is a great way for folks to hear more about you and your background. Whenever we have you in, we're always really excited to hear about your market views because you've got great insights. And we don't spend much time talking about your background and how you got to the position that you're in today. So I'm really interested to hear some of that, and we'll kick off there. How did you get started in the world of investing? Where did you grow up and go to school? And what got you interested in investing in the first place? The way it came about, it's kind of a goofy thing. Both my parents are entrepreneurs. I got involved in business. I always knew I went to Emory University and went there for business. For some reason, my earlier school career, when I was taking classes like psychology or philosophy, I couldn't understand them. You know how some things just don't click? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I had horrendous grades. And then, I don't know, for some reason, business and accounting really clicked in. And I started interviewing at Emory for a summer job. And I'll never forget it. I interviewed a firm called First Jersey Securities. I don't think they're around. And I, in fact, I don't I think they were doing like illicit stuff. <laughs> so I'm interviewing. I don't know anything about investing at all. And he starts telling me about penny stocks. And he says, you know, like this company, Suncoast Plastics, they made the lids for Tylenol. So if you go back years ago, there was a problem with Tylenol particularly there were people that were infecting the actual Tylenol bottles. They make these protective lids. So I like, oh, I told a buddy of mine in fraternity and I said, you know, this thing seems pretty interesting. So we put a couple of dollars in. The next thing you know, there's a scare. Somebody had tampered with a Tylenol bottle. I'm like, wow, it was interesting. And I said, oh, my buddy, I don't know what it means. Anyway, next thing you know, the stock doubles. I'm like, wow. I said, it's not good for the person, but this is not bad. I was like, wow, this is pretty interesting. And it's so easy. It just doubles overnight, right? <laughs> and I started taking finance classes. I really enjoyed it. And then I went to work for SunTrust Bank in Atlanta in finance, did a lot of peer group analysis, M&A analysis, and I really got into finance. And then I went back to Wharton to get my MBI with an idea. I was going to go back to the bank and do financial analysis and uh, go to Westchester County in New York. So how'd you end up at Emory from New York? It's actually a long story because I actually transferred. I was at Hobart College in upstate New York. It's a good school for the earlier part of the conversation. I was just not motivated by the class I was having. My grades were terrible. And both my roommate and I decided we need to change. I wanted to go to business school and we ended up in Atlanta and I'd never been down south. Really liked it. We ended up down there and then going to the business school and then working for SunTrust. And I was going to go back to Atlanta. I love the city of Atlanta. And then one thing led to another and I came back to New York. So where were you before BlackRock? I went to Wharton. I worked for the summer for, anybody remember, Manufacturers Hanover in New York that merged with Chemical Bank, which became J.P. Morgan or part of J.P. Morgan, <clears throat> doing commercial lending analysis. And then when I went back for my second year at Wharton and I accepted a job at Chemical Bank as a financial analyst doing the same M&A analysis. And there was a woman at E.F. Hutton. Anyway, she said, why don't you give trading a shot? And she said, you've always done financial analysis. Why don't you give this trading thing a shot? And so I thought about it and I called my dad and my dad said, trading is not a career. So he said, you've done financial analysis, do that, and it's not a career. I called my dad back and I said, I want to give it a shot. I started at BF Hutton, which became Lehman Brothers, and 35 years later, I'm still trading. So, 
then I went to Lehman, spun out of Lehman to run a hedge fund. And unfortunately, I did a May 08. wasn't exactly perfect timing. <laughs> Good timing to leave Lehman, but it wasn't a perfect time to set up a credit hedge fund. And then we had a tough 08. And when he, then we ended up doing really well in 09. And then I knew Rob Capito and Larry Fink. And I know why we started talking. And then I know I was super excited about you know, BlackRock's a unique place. And we started talking. And the next thing you know, we merged the hedge fund into BlackRock. That's how I got here. Sort of a strange way to get here. And now it's 12 years ago now. Was there a mentor that you look back on who really helped you along the way, either at Lehman Brothers or even at BlackRock, helped either shape your investment philosophy or helped you as a leader along the way? I've never told him this. I don't know if he will ever get this. But so the guy hired me at Lehman Brothers again at Bart McDade. So it's an interesting thing that Bart ran corporate bonds. I started trading corporate bonds and he taught me how to trade. And he actually became the president of Lehman Brothers right before it went bankrupt. The irony around the guy, and he's the most extraordinary leader I've ever been around. And he is, I mean, people would literally go anywhere to work with him. But, you know, he talked, you know, he's unbelievable at analysis, trading, and, you know, time different than investing. And by the way, coming to BlackRock, it probably took me a year and a half, two years to figure out the difference between trading and investing. But anyway, he taught me, I mean, he's just the highest quality individual, he taught me about leading people and managing people and pretty extraordinary person. I'd say this to this day, and people who are at Lehman Brothers would tell you this, if he became president two years earlier, Lehman would still be around. Very, very thoughtful about risk. I mean, he managed risk incredibly, incredibly diligently. So I think, you know, he taught me a lot about how much risk do you take? How do you manage it? How do you stop yourself out when you're losing, et cetera? And so he was hugely influential. What was it that made him a great leader? There's something to him that I, you know, I think a part of it is a selfless sense of what you're doing, that the success of your team is more important than your success. And giving you rope, one of the things you learn over the years, it's like somebody on your team could have an idea, an investment or what have you, and you actually think it's not the right idea. And then at times, if it's obviously it's not going to hurt significantly, you let them do it. Gave me rope in times where I thought it was the right thing to do. He's always thoughtful about, he's going to learn, incredibly thoughtful about that. And and I knew he was always in my camp. You have ups and downs. And I knew he had my back. So, you know, some people like just say, you know, this impression on you to this day. I think about like, you know, when I have a tough personnel situation or something, so like, what would Bart do? And it's, uh, does ground me in how I think about it. But yeah, no, very, very lucky. Great to have that reference point that you can go back to on things. For sure. Let's shift to your investment philosophy. You touched on that a little bit. Maybe a step back first. The scale of BlackRock, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is massive. The scale of what you oversee is massive within that. Can you just describe quickly your role at BlackRock for folks that aren't familiar with it and the team and assets that you oversee? I'm the CIO of Global Fixed Income. So I guess our total size about is 2.6 trillion. We've got obviously a huge iShares business, a big passive business. I don't day to day. I mean, I'm technically responsible for it. I don't spend a lot of time on our index and our teams run that and very detached, but I functionally run our active side of it. And so the day to day is involved in watching. We have a whole series of portfolio managers that are running individual portfolios. And then obviously I have my portfolios that I run. And it's been a good mix of daily strategy meetings or daily macro meetings. I'm always thinking about the broad context of our, all of our portfolios. And then obviously the ones that I run directly. I chair the investment council for the firm, which is kind of a neat thing. So we get together as a group, there are 30 of us that run um, bigger portfolios at the firm, get together once a quarter and think about broad positioning. Uh, by the way, it doesn't mean we go in different directions a lot. But anyway, it gives me some good perspective and it's really helped me build relationships around the firm on the equity side, commodity side. I've been doing that now, gosh, for 10 years. It's been a treat to do it. 
Tell me about your investment philosophy. How would you describe it, your approach to active management? Do you know how some things in your life are these catalysts or these inflection points of your career? I wouldn't say this other than we were talking about some personal stuff, but I, when I came out of school, I remember when I first started trading, and I think the Wall Street Journal actually just talked about this in some article, but every night I would do my research on, so you know, the market was over the counter in corporate bonds. Every night there were like 400 bonds I traded and I would write down the price of every single bond every single night. It took me two hours every night. Because if you knew if one bond traded, what it meant for the other bond. And so I do this every single night. But it helped me. It's like somebody said, make me a market and one ask in, the, in this bond or that bond. I'd already thought about it. So if I saw something move, I said, okay, well, that, if Hydro-Quebec's move, then Ontario's move, because I was straight Canadian bond. And I never forget I did it. You know, it didn't hit me until all of a sudden I started buying this bond. Because I, and I'll never forget, it was Hydro-Quebec 10 and three quarters of 10 at the time. Or was it a 25-year bond or something? I bought it. And I was like, oh, I did my work. It must be priced right. And then somebody else sold me the bond. I'm like, what? Okay. So I got more of them. And then, then somebody else sold me the bond. And then somebody else sold me the bond. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, I have a lot of these things. And I'm like, well, I've done my work. I know where it trades relative to this one and that one. And, that. and I have to tell you, it was that situation. Like all of a sudden, I realized everybody knew I had all the bonds. And one thing you learn in, uh, in trading is it's not about being right. It's about making money. You could be right. And if everybody thinks you're wrong or everybody thinks you own them all, you're going to lose. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I got to get out of this position. But everybody knew I had it. I have to tell you, in fixed income, that had a huge influence over my, it's like, you know, I thought about it, you got to scale. And I think about in fixed income, it's different than equities. Fixed income is convex to the downside. And it is, A, it's an institutional market. In fixed income, I try and make a little bit of money a lot of times because I don't want to end up with all the bonds and then all of a sudden have some exogenous shock that fraud at a company or over a long career, you have things like, how could that ever happen? So it really changed my thinking about fixed income is that, gosh, I'd rather make a hundred good trades, particularly now we have big teams around the world, is you know set the macro theme, set the regime, think about asset allocation, let your teams go do it. And if you have good people, you know, I literally call it like running a casino, which Larry hates. But you know, think about the way the casinos make money is if they tilt the odds in their favor, then they do it a billion times, you're going to win at the end. And so my philosophy, by the way, it's different than equities, but my philosophy in fixed income is diversify, do a lot of trades, get regime right, get the asset allocation right, and then do a lot of relative value trades. Don't make a huge bet on duration. Don't make a huge bet that's going to overwhelm the whole portfolio. But I literally think it was that trade that changed my philosophy around, wow, if you're in the wrong spot, you could blow up your year or career, quite frankly. Like I say, I think it's different in equity because equity, you're trying to preserve the convexity of the upside. Fixed income, bonds mature at par or they don't. <laughs> And when they don't, it's bad, right? <laughs> that evolved how I've thought about the world. And you know, this idea, if you get the big picture right, then asset allocation falls from that. Not that I always get the big picture right at all. Then figure out within that, how do you, you do a lot of good trades? It's interesting to think how a micro scale, a single trade shaped your investment philosophy. When I think about the last 20 years of investing, it's been so much about the macro. We've had a global financial crisis. We've had a pandemic. We've had this influence from policymakers, first monetary, now fiscal all of a sudden. How have recent times shaped or evolved your investment philosophy? So I'd say a couple of things. First of all, I am convinced that the tools and technology have really developed and that utilizing whether it's factor investing or a data assimilation. BlackRock's really good at risk management tools or Aladdin platform and whether it's stress testing or scenario analyses. I really believe this blending quantitative and fundamental. And I'd say something that, I, that probably I shouldn't say, but maybe it's extreme. Like, I don't think one works. 
Like, I think you can have a good year in pure quant. And then I think it's tougher the second year and then we can have maybe good two years, but then it's not. What I really think is the ability to use data, the really ability to use analytics. Like I think factor investing is a great way to invest. However, there are environmental conditions that can really shift. And if you're not doing the, the qualitative analysis, the fundamental analysis, then I don't think it'll work. And so for me, it's been about really get world-class, sophisticated analytics, data, stress testing, scenario analysis, and then trying to assess the environmental conditions. I mean, think about what we just went through in the last year. If you were just looking at history and say, well, what would happen? You would have gotten crushed. Some of this stuff is historic. And trying to think about how history guided you would not be a great guide. But I'm convinced that the world's moved to a place that if you can use all the tools and incorporate all the tools in your investment philosophy, you have a better chance of creating durable alpha as opposed to a good year, bad year, good year, bad year. I think the growth of data and systems and technology has been extraordinary. Extraordinary. And I just don't think you can perform. If you're in a niche, deep fundamental credit business, totally different. But boy, I think systematic tools are really powerful today. That's a great transition. Love to hear more about, I guess, your team. But really, for you personally, you mentioned people all around the world studying investment ideas, going through a process and finding the best ideas. How do you keep all of that straight, try to have a global perspective, try to set a top-down view while also getting all these bottom-up ideas? It's got to be so challenging to synthesize all of that. So avoiding sleep. <laughs> you know, we do, and I do these monthly calls. This is this crazy thing that once a month, we try and take all of the big picture ideas and try and separate them down into, you know, filter them into what is important and what's not. I spend the entire weekend working on this monthly call. I mean, literally, if I had to tell you, I mean, like 16 hours. And because it really helps me. And it's like, I always say, it's like going to the dentist. I hate doing it, but I know I got to do it. It literally calibrates you for the next month. You know, there's things that happen that iterate off of that. I don't know how anybody can do it unless you literally have to take a step back. You're watching dollar yen all day. You're watching two-year swap spreads. And I have to step back and like get it away from the noise and say, okay, let's try and put all the pieces together and think through these pieces. I'm sure there's a more sophisticated way to do it, but I haven't figured out how. And then try and put it all together and think about this is happening. You know, this is driving inflation. So this should be an influence on real rates. I really feel like you got to get away and try and put it together. And I, you know, I have to say, the two best investors I've ever seen, Stan Druckenmiller and, and David Tepper, both are friends of mine. They have an ability in a much more efficient way than I do of separating out, that's not important, that's not important, this is important. And when it's important, I'm gonna hit it. The two of them are the most remarkable I've ever seen of just with different styles to how they do it. But I think, I mean, I, they have this ability that I take the noise, whereas I find in our business and everybody's business, people are talking about this and this, and you know, what does that mean if the ECB does this? And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's not gonna move the market and what have you. But I think trying to step back and say, okay, these are the key points and just focus in on these, build your investment process for that point in time around those, and then just let the noise go away. That's how I've been doing it for I don't know how many years. And I have to tell you, when that weekend comes up, my wife says, oh, my God, it's monthly weekend. <laughs> it's not a socially ingratiating thing. I know. I feel like I don't know, it's been my stupid way to do it. That approach to cutting through all the noise, taking that step back, is that something that you're trying to instill across your team to take that approach? Or is it really the team meant to get down in the weeds and that it's on you and I, I don't know, maybe some other team members to bring that macro perspective, bring that synthesizing point? How, do, how does that work and what kind of culture are you trying to create within that? 
you know, I will say, even going back to business school and otherwise, I always think there, there are people who think, you know, are always very clever and figure out, like, I've got the shortcut way to get there. I don't think there's a shortcut way to get there. I mean, our culture is about really working hard and digging deep into a bunch of different things and trying to get to the bottom of things. So we try and build that. We throw out ideas and people cogitate over them and then say, well, I'm thinking this. And then, But anyway, it's just good culture, a lot of young people, a lot of diverse talent, think about things differently. And then we try and put that all together. But then, like you say, then you've got people who trade agency mortgages and you need to know every coupon and what the basis is and what financing costs are, et cetera. And so you need people to do that. But I, you know, I try and encourage, like even the people that do that, like we have a Tuesday ISG, our investment strategy group meeting. And I, well, I would say encourage, maybe an understatement. We make people go to that because people need to step out from, if you're trading agency mortgages and you're trading you know, certain coupons and agency mortgages, you should really look at, we spend two hours a week, what's happening in the credit market, what's happening at real rates, what's happening in Europe, what's happening at credit in Asia to try and think through, gosh, now I know why there's a demand for agency mortgages today, or, or I now I know what the banks, how the banks are financing themselves, what's happening in the credit market. So that influences why they're buying mortgages. So we try and, you know, even the people that are deep into the weeds, you got to step back and think about the big picture. And by the way, for their careers, I think that is the right thing. I mean, who knows how businesses evolve, but we want people to think bigger picture. I have this philosophy to me also, maybe it's a little different. If we have somebody in Europe that's trading credit I'll let them run a piece of equity in their position because there are times where like credit spreads are too tight and I don't want them to be sitting there doing nothing. People want to stay busy. They want to be productive. If there's nothing in credit that makes any sense, can you own a piece of equity? You're always intellectually vibrant around thinking about different things. So we let people migrate a bit. And as long as you're managing the risk, you know what to have on, et cetera. And you don't have overlap in your portfolio. You talked about working with all these different team members and that's one of the advantages of the scale that BlackRock brings. So I want to ask you both sides of that. It was great to hear you say about joining BlackRock in 2009. BlackRock was big then, right? (laughs) I'm sure you couldn't have imagined how big it's become. First, what are some of the advantages of that scale? And then what are some of the challenges in managing? We were doing okay. I mean, we had a tough go in 08 and we're doing really well in 09. We were six of us, six partners, and two didn't want to come. And I, you know, I take a lot of pride in most of the, most of all this, I brought 42 people over to BlackRock and the number of people are actually running commercial mortgages or Asian credit or European credit. I'm pretty proud of that. It's a good group, but I'll never forget it. We sat in this conference room and I said, this place is the epicenter of finance. And I said, this is an exciting thing. It's not like if this opportunity didn't present itself, it was a once in a lifetime thing. So no, we make the call, not unanimously, but we made the call. And in fact, one of the people who didn't is still here and doing really well. But at the time, like you say, it's become different today. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I tell you, all my buddies run, including the two I mentioned earlier, run big macro hedge funds. The information flow within the four walls of this organization, or I don't know how many walls there are in this organization, is unbelievable. And I always think, like, how can they make masks? Do you think Japan will be a buyer or seller of bonds and manage a lot of money for Japanese clients? The information advantage is in the flows and the technology and the analytics and everything. I think there is a distinct advantage. And part of why I liked somebody literally last night at dinner, it's like, why are you more energized today than like he came to work here eight years ago? But I think it's fun. I think it's dynamic. You're trying to figure it out. We've got a lot of cool things you see within the platform. Flip side of it, you get frustrated at times. It's like if there's a hot new issue in debt or equity, and uh, <laughs> I'd like to buy a lot of that, that's the only time that I can get a little frustrating at times. But anyway, I think you know the research we have and the flow stuff, when we look at, friends of mine call me up, and we'll look at it 
know, it's a private equity investment or something. And we're looking at investment in Malaysia. That's a healthcare company. We've got a healthcare analyst. We've got a Malaysian analyst. And so you can get down the road pretty quickly on assessing something. That is a neat thing for us. But like I say, when it's the hot new issue, sometimes it's more sharing than I would like to do there. Yeah, I imagine. And it's interesting. BlackRock's scale is massive. But when you think about your competitors in the fixed income space, so many of them are really large, too. A lot of them are facing the same exact challenges. I'm sure there's niche players that are getting into that instead. But that's the name of the game in fixed income, right? I think longer term. And we talk about fixed income. It's different. And part of why I learned that it's institutional. B, it's, a, it's actually a small market in terms of players in it, really, at the end of the day. And so a lot of what we're doing, and I know some of our competitors are doing, is I think where a lot of the real alpha is going to be going forward. It's bespoke investments where you functionally create the investment, whether it's in the commercial real estate or resi or a European asset finance, the term loan to an aircraft producer, those things where you really got to spend, I just read a 50-page document on a really cool 20% LTV funding structure. That's where I think the alpha is. I think the world is moving to betas free and they're pretty close to free. Can you originate, functionally originate or structure when they require incredible amounts of legal, operational diligence, et cetera. I think that's why in fixing it, particularly having that scale is advantageous. We've definitely seen that. We've seen private credit expand tremendously. We've seen direct lending become an institutional asset class over the last 10 years. Certainly started as small and medium businesses. Two questions with that. Do you see that moving way up market, bigger companies, bigger entities doing that? Do you think of that as sitting in separate portfolios that are private in nature or or do those make their way into some of your liquid portfolios? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the banking system is changing. And I think that the financing markets are really evolving in a bunch of different ways. So I think they're private credit portfolios that are going to be generally, and I have run longer locked up structures, but if you've got long-term durable liabilities, I've heard somebody argue at a Fed meeting I was at that banks fund themselves on overnight deposits. I've got 10-year locked up money. It's a pretty durable argument. I think that will continue to grow. What we do within our portfolios, we think a ton about, you know, one of the big metrics we got to think about is the liquidity parameters. And so if we're going to take on like today, we're doing more in less liquid space because that's where the alpha is. The other side of that lever is I got to run a higher level of liquidity and drawable liquidity in the portfolio. But can you run 3% of your assets in less liquid stuff that you're just going to take to maturity? So there's definitely a place for it. You know, the nice thing about our platform is uh, because we're placing the AAA down to the equity is you have a pretty good idea where the equity is going to, you know, oftentimes will drive the transaction. And if we have a pretty good idea on the equity, we can get the MES priced at an effective level. So it's a big advantage to have that. You know, you have a pretty good idea. And you know, oftentimes today, for example, in the CLO market, we like to own the lower parts of the debt stack because we'd like to own the structure. It's a lot of work, but that's where I think a lot of the alpha is going forward. Great. I want to ask you one more question about process and portfolio, and then we'll spend a little bit of time talking about the world today. You've talked a lot about investment philosophy, this team, bringing them together to discuss ideas. How does it all come together in a portfolio of assets expressing views? You talked about making a lot of little trades, making a little bit of money a lot of time. How does that all come together for you? So it really depends on the portfolio. We've got a lot of little expressions in there. But then like today, we've made the determination. We think a lot of the US high yield markets got rich. So we've been pairing that back, going more up into IG, running a more of a barbell with some securitized assets, layering a little bit of EM. 
and then just letting the teams go. I mean, they know every one of our, you know, this, I know you see this crazy dashboard. It looks like you're playing battleship between the rows and columns. And everybody knows that we give them a series of parameters. We give them a beta parameter. So we use a term called risk on, which is tether the S&P 500 to understand the beta of an asset. We use VAR to get a sense for dispersion. We give them a cash allocation and a liquidity so that if you're running the CLO book, no matter what the portfolio, and you know all of them have different parameters, if you're going to you know go more down the stack, you've got to manage your liquidity. And then every day it comes together because we meet every single day and we look at anything that's shifted. And RQA starts our meeting and says, we added two basis points of duration. We bought Chinese rates here. And so every day I know what's happening. And then it's different, like for a global allocation fund, which is more equity oriented, we're spending way more time thinking through which sectors, individual names, because we run a more concentrated equity book. So we spend more time with that. So we know exactly if we're making a concentrated bet in you know, a given company, then we got to know what's our correlated risk relative to everything else. So it depends on which it is. But the key to me is all these dashboards. Like you can't follow it unless, you know, every part of what risk you're taking and where that risk is. And then quite frankly, to me, we had this discussion today where you're running through, there's a little bit of art, more than a little bit of art to it. So what happens when vol comes down, like a lot of the models run off of, you know, we then use a 45-day half-life in these models. What it tells you is like high yield has no vol. And so you can literally like buy more, buy more, buy more. I mean, you got to take the models and you got to say, securitized assets have no volatility today, none. But in a shock scenario like happened in last year, all of a sudden you've got this massive risk spike. So anyway, we try and if we get all the data in front of us, I'll say, you know, hopefully we're making good decisions on asset allocation and regime, et cetera. We tend not to make mistakes on we didn't know our risk. That is hugely important for us. That's super helpful to get that. I wanted to just hear your outlook on the world because you're not afraid to be contrarian. You're not afraid to be different than others out there. What do you see being the biggest risks in the world right now? And where do you see us going as a global economy over the next year? And I've been too vocal on this one thing. I'm pretty wigged out. I think the Fed's waiting too long and I think they're making a mistake. They did a heroic job in March and April, and I don't think they'll ever get the right credit because what they're doing around stabilizing the top end of the cap stack was unbelievable. People just talk about they cut rates. They stabilized commercial financing, auto financing. I don't know why they're doing what they're doing now. They tied themselves to the mast of this average inflation targeting. However, vaccine came sooner. And I think it's really dangerous when subprime auto finance AAA subprime auto was at 800 spread a year ago. It's now at 15. A single A subprime auto, I think, is at 45. I mean, this stuff is priced wrong. And when you price the top part of the stack wrong, when you crowd out by buying treasuries and agency mortgages at the wrong price, agency mortgages at negative 40 OAS, it's crazy. They don't need to keep buying agency mortgages. The housing market is on fire. It's actually the affordability rates going down. It's just crazy to keep doing that. There's stuff on the front end of the curve with liquidity. When you do this and you create the top part of the stack too rich, Everybody has an IRR target, an ROE target, a liability target. And so you just put on more leverage to get there. I think it's really dangerous. People just like find other ways to get the return. I don't think it's too dangerous. I think they should move. And by the way, I think they're right on transitory inflation. I think inflation will run a bit higher. I think the disinflationary shock is done. But every analytic piece of work, and if you all have send you the, we've gone through the breakdown, reopening, impact. And then normalize that and you know, like used cars, I think have been 52% of the growth in this inflation rate. But if you normalize airfare, lodging, growth of um, used cars, et cetera, you're going to run at two-ish percent, maybe a little higher. 
But I think they're right on the transitory thing generally. However, you're not creating any more jobs by keeping too much liquidity in the system. In fact, I think it's going the other way because when you overheat input costs or you overheat wage acceleration too fast, it promotes technology and fewer jobs longer term. And companies always look at the return on invested capital versus their weighted average cost of capital. And if your input costs and your margins are deteriorating, you just don't invest as much. I think they're going to get to there. I think they'll taper sooner than people think. Having gotten a front row seat in 2008, that's not going to happen again. But macro prudential risk management does not work. You know, the banking system is fine, but the system, pension funds, insurance companies have to buy assets at the wrong price because they're getting crowded out. And um, I think they've done a great job, and I think it's time to evolve. I watch that quite a bit. And then what really keeps me up at night that I would never see on TV is people sell vol at the wrong price when this happens. The other side of when you do QE, it dulls the vol because people believe the Fed will just keep going. People sell vol at the wrong price and all of a sudden, you've seen this over a number of years and all of a sudden that blows up and liquidity blows up. I think they need to evolve and I think they will. It's like the pandemic never happened. Investors for the last decade were getting pushed out on the risk curve and now just getting pushed even further. Are you worried at all about 2022, the fiscal withdrawal that could happen? I think the economy is going to grow. I mean, I think we're going to have an 8% GDP this year. And I think it's got a big tailwind in the next year. I've never seen the inventory drawdown and capacity rebuild that's going to take place. I mean, you look at the energy sector, there's a pretty good embodiment of that with ESG evolving and energy being in a, in a decline and financing for drillers, et cetera, being more difficult. We've been a capacity shortfall for the current demand. There is a lot of capacity that's got to be rebuilt. I think there's going to be a load of CapEx, R&D, the savings rate. You know, I know this is a stat that the savings in this country is $2.2 trillion higher than if we didn't have a pandemic. I mean, if you just took the growth rate on savings, so there's huge firepower on the consumption side and the individuals have delevered, they pay down their credit card debt. So I, I think this thing has got some sticky legs to it into 2022. I'm not that we grow 8%, but I could see 4 to 5% GDP next year. The next evolution, Europe is behind us in terms of vaccine and Europe's starting to grow. EM is, you know, you've seen, you know, our, we always look at the second derivative of growth and where the U.S., the second derivative is starting to level off. Europe is still picking up. EM is actually starting to pick up. And we take China out of that. You know, China's pretty darn stable, maybe trending down a little bit. But VM can easily grow and the global economy is in good shape. I don't know. I'm more enthusiastic about durability of growth. And the hiring is going to be explosive. You just can't process how many people or can't find the people today. So I know I'm pretty convinced you got a good tailwind. This has been great hearing your background and how you go about doing things at BlackRock. I think to wrap up, we'll go with the capital allocators tradition and hit you with some closing questions here if you're ready. Okay. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I do a lot of work in urban education. I chair the board of 14 schools in Newark called North Star. And I think they're the best school literally in the country. That and I play golf. I have a pretty simple life. I mean, I... <laughs> I have this credo that I probably shouldn't say that it's a work hard, play hard, give back and reboot. You know, obviously my family and friends are in there. Yep. Awesome. I'll give you a golf follow up here. If you could only play one golf course for the rest of your life, what would it be? Augusta. Got the honor to play there a couple of times. And I don't know. I get the chills when I'm there. Just I've watched it on TV for so long. That is a very cool place. I like the whole tradition of it. That's a tough one to beat. Awesome. Awesome place. What teaching from your parents most stayed with you? 
treat people the right way, you know, treat people the right way. And, and that, that comes back to you in the end. And, you know, oftentimes, whatever you have a disagreement with somebody or you have, you have to deal with people the right way, you treat them the right way, it tends to come back at you. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? You know, I say this to my kids all the time, creating your own opportunities. People are always coming to you with things and usually it's beneficial to them. Not always, man, it's a bit cynical, but you know, you always got to create your own opportunity and be proactive as opposed to reactive. And I think I was doing okay in school. And then all of a sudden, like you had to college, like you had to study harder. And I was thinking like, you got to be proactive and instead of just sitting back and waiting, you could be cynical in this business because a lot of people... I always feel like you're trying to get an edge and, and what have you. But I always think that if you're trying to create your own opportunity of being proactive, being innovative, I think is, I wish I, uh, I wish I picked that up in college. <laughs> <laughs> well, you clearly ended up picking it up because <laughs> you definitely created a great opportunity for yourself. Last one, what movie, book, or TV show that you recently finished would you recommend to everyone? It's a book that we're using at our schools called Permission to Feel by Mark Brackett. We're working with our schools, we're working with Yale, particularly around this period of stress and racial uprising, et cetera, getting to know people's feelings and how they react. In the, and we do a lot of work here with stress testing, et cetera. It's incredible. Yale's done some really cool stuff on that. So I, I'll tell you one funny one. So I don't know if you, you saw the show, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. I got to know him. I asked him a bunch of things about mastery. Can I give you a quick story? We, uh, we oh, let's do it. Yeah. I'm not going to turn down a Jordan story at the end of this. Anyway, he told me this thing. So I said, tell me about how did you get so great and how did you create mastery in what you were doing? And there's this thing where he lost to the Detroit Pistons in this incredibly controversial in a seven game. And he said, the next morning I woke up, what they were doing was they were forcing me to go to the left and I couldn't go to the left. And they knew that was my weak spot. He said, I woke up the next morning and I just dribbled my left hand. And for two weeks, all I did was dribble my left hand. And then for two weeks after that, I just took layups with my left. And then for two weeks after that, I just shot foul shots with my left hand. And he said, I didn't use my right hand the entire off season. And he said, next year I was ready to go. Obviously fitting my philosophy around, like you got to work at something and, and it's a great story. And you can see his competitive drive, his desire to succeed. There's no way he was going to lose that next year. That focus to just stick with that every day is why he's the best ever. That's awesome. Well, Rick, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed hearing from you. I always do. Thanks so much for taking the time. Here. I got a little personal. I hope this doesn't show up in Twitter. Or like <laughs> no, that. it's great. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Tim. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.